0: You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Lumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and with me today is Dr. Robert Kloner. He's Vice President of Translation at Huntington Medical Research Institutes and Professor of Medicine in the Cardiovascular Division at the Keck School of Medicine, which is at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Dr. Kloner, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about a topic which, you know, I think most of us feel is very important, but for some reason there hasn't been a lot of discussion about it, which is focusing on erectile dysfunction, cardiovascular risk, and also the debate about testosterone and testosterone replacement. It's one of those things that I think all of us in practice or in cardiology deal with because for whatever reason, these patients are told by their urologist if they have any kind of cardiovascular disease you need to go get cleared by the cardiologist to use drugs for erectile dysfunction and also patients come to us and say is it okay to do testosterone replacement and many times the average cardiologist has no idea what the right answer is so i think you're going to help us and you're going to help all the primary care physicians that listen to our program so if we could start, maybe we'll talk about your research in the safety of drugs for erectile dysfunction, or maybe even better, talk about what one should think about when a patient presents with ED in terms of cardiovascular risk. Let's start there. That's
1: a great place to start. So an erection is a vascular phenomenon. It's an vascular event. And so the same things that affect cardiovascular risk affect your ability to have an erection. So risk factors such as smoking, Hypertension, diabetes, dyslipidemia, being overweight, lack of physical activity. Those are all risk factors not only for cardiovascular disease, they're also risk factors for erectile dysfunction. You need to have a functioning endothelium. And anything that causes endothelial dysfunction can impede the ability of the arteries, arterioles, sinusoids within the penis to dilate normally, and that's what you need for an erection. So the vast majority of erectile dysfunction is due to this vascular problem. And so there's an intersection between cardiovascular risk factors and risk factors for ED. So when someone comes into your office complaining of ED, the physician should think, aha, ED, there could be cardiovascular risk factors, we should really work this patient up for the known cardiovascular risk factors. Is the patient hypertensive? Does he smoke? Does he have dyslipidemia, diabetes, etc.?
0: So that's very interesting. And so what is the prevalence of coronary disease in a patient with erectile dysfunction? Once you identify such a patient, what's the likelihood that that patient actually has potentially clinically significant atherosclerosis? the
1: chances are reasonably high that that patient's going to have risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And if you look at the question of if you take patients with known coronary disease, what percent have ED? It's very high. It's very high. In one study that we did in patients who had documented multivessel coronary artery disease, about 75% of those men had some element of erectile dysfunction. And a high percentage, it was severe ED. So once you have coronary artery disease, you have a very good chance of having ED.
0: Okay, well, that leads me to getting down to what do you do in your office. So if a patient comes in with ED, how do you make, and let's say they are hypertensive, maybe a former smoker, middle-aged guy, how do you make a decision of whether further cardiovascular workup should be done? Like, would you ever decide we better do a stress test on you because you've got ED? Or does that add to your risk assessment, as well as all the other risk factors.
1: Well, it does. I mean, you want to obviously work up the patient for cardiovascular risk factors. You want to do a cardiovascular exam. You also want to make sure there's no anatomic cause for ED, because there's other urologic causes, such as Peyronie's disease and other diseases that are primarily urologic, and those need to be ruled out. Once you've done that, if you've got a patient who presents with ED, and You're pretty sure that it's vascular in origin. You want to make sure that, first of all, the patient can achieve the normal degree of exercise required for sexual activity, which runs three to five mets, basically. So in some of those cases, if the patient has absolutely no angina, no symptoms, the patient is active physically, walks long distances or bicycles long distances, and you're not concerned that they're having ischemia, then that's very, very low risk. And that patient can probably go on to get a PDE5 inhibitor, phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors, such as sildenafil, vardenafil, tadalafil, and others. If the patient can't achieve three to five METs uh, from just talking to the patient, you might want to then consider going on and doing a exercise stress test to works. see if there's ischemia. If the patient has unstable symptoms, unstable angina, severe heart failure, lethal arrhythmia, this sort of thing, then you really want to clear up the cardiac problem first, get the cardiac condition straightened out before you go on to recommend that that patient have sexual activity or receive the PD-5 inhibitors. There's a couple guidelines on that. One is guidelines that were released from a group called the Princeton Consensus Guidelines. Uh, Another is Guidelines from the American Heart Association by Levine and coworkers, published in circulation a few years ago. So I would recommend your readers take a look at those.
0: Great. Yeah, so obviously when these drugs first came out, uh, the PDE5 inhibitors in general, there was some concern about cardiovascular safety with the drugs themselves. And in just a couple minutes I want you to follow up on on that issue and give us some wisdom. Sure. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Kloner, Vice President of Translation at Huntington Medical Research Institutes and Professor of Medicine in the Cardiovascular Division at the Keck School of Medicine, which is at the University of Southern California. So there was this initial fear that if you took these drugs, they might cause cardiovascular events, and you've already alluded to the bigger issue probably being that you have to be fit enough to actually engage in sexual activity. So do we have to worry about any direct toxicity of the medications or is it just the cardiovascular health of the patient?
1: Mainly the cardiovascular health of the patient. So the large studies that have been done and published looking at the incidence of cardiovascular events in patients getting PD5 inhibitors versus placebo have not really shown a signal. There are occasional case reports in the literature of men having cardiac events associated with taking a PD-5 inhibitor, but usually then associated with sexual activity. So the PD-5 inhibitors enable the person to achieve the three to five mets needed for sexual activity, but there really is not data that suggests that the PD-5 inhibitors themselves have negative cardiovascular events. There are some contraindications, okay? The major one are organic nitrates, That includes the short-acting sublingual nitroglycerin pills and sprays as well as the long-acting nitrates such as isosorbid dinitrate and isosorbid mononitrate. And there, what happens when you take a nitrate is you get an increase in NO and then an increase in cyclic GMP, which causes vasodilatation. When you take the PD5 inhibitor, that prevents the breakdown of cyclic GMP. And so NO increases cyclic GMP production. The PD-5 inhibitor prevents the breakdown of cyclic GMP. You get a buildup of cyclic GMP and a lot of vasodilatation. And in some patients, you'll get symptomatic hypotension. Not everyone and not all the time because there's differences in volume status of the patient, sympathetic tone of the patient, which may alter it. But unpredictably, some patients that get the nitrate plus the PD-5 inhibitor will have hypotension, and therefore that remains an absolute contraindication.
0: I document in the chart when I prescribe these drugs to patients, I explained to them that if they have chest pain for any reason, they need to tell, But not, not that the medicine will cause chest pain, but if they get chest pain, someone will likely hand them a nitroglycerin and know that's improving in terms of the emergency room's awareness.
1: I think the emergency wards are becoming more aware of it. The other interaction that people should be aware of is alpha blockade can sometimes be associated with orthostatic hypotension, and there's a newer drug out for pulmonary hypertension, which can also interact with the PD-5 inhibitors.
0: Yeah, there's been less discussion about alpha blockers than there was initially. There was a lot of concern about alpha blockers. How how has that changed? It seems like that hasn't been as big of a concern. Well,
1: it's a warning, you know, and some patients do get orthostatic hypotension when the two are put together, but it's not a contraindication. It's a warning, and if you start with the lowest doses of both of the Alpha blocker and the PD five inhibitors, you can often avoid a problem.
0: I suppose that uh, you don't get nearly as dangerous a hypotension as you do with the nitrates, is that it, or is that not predictable either?
1: Um, usually, it's not as severe, and it tends to be more orthostatic in nature.
0: So, on that topic, there's been obviously an indication for low dose tadalafil for BPH for obstructive yes. urapids. Yes, yeah. What do you think about that? Obviously, the, some of those people are already on alpha blockers, and do you have any? I know you're not a urologist, but would the tendency be to switch from one to the other if they have ED and they have obstructive uropathy or BPH?
1: Tadalafil has been shown to be effective for both BPH and ED and. There are some patients who are on the chronic low dose of it for that. And some of those patients may or may not also need to be on an alpha blocker. So I think it's, again, a question of titrating the dose. Especially if they're on an alpha blocker, they tend to start with the lowest doses and then sort of monitor the patients.
0: You've helped us in terms of realizing that the cardiovascular safety of those drugs is actually pretty good, and you've published some nice papers on showing you know treadmill testing and other things doesn't seem to be affected by being on those drugs and the main issue is to make sure they're healthy enough for sexual activity and also to do what doctors are supposed to do, examine the patient when you see it and make sure you're not missing anything else. So that, that's all been really great and, and also some of the contraindications. I wanted you to weigh in on something that cardiologists frequently are asked to do, which is to clear a patient for these drugs. So that a patient who has known coronary disease is either told by their primary care doctor or somebody else that you better check with your cardiologist before we put you on. What should the average cardiologist know? Because I I think many of them just tell people you shouldn't take these medications. And how do you deal with someone with established coronary disease who really could benefit from being on a PD-5 inhibitor? Right. Well, I
1: think the first question is, is it safe for the patient to have sexual activity? Are they low risk, moderate risk, high risk? If they're low risk, it's fine for them to be on it. If it's moderate risk... Consider an exercise stress test or other test to look at uh, stress. If they're high risk, they're unstable, from a cardiovascular standpoint, I would get the cardiac problem fixed first. And then the cardiologist has to discuss with the patient, if they're on a nitrate, that they cannot be on a PD-5 inhibitor. And this brings up another point, and that is there are a lot of patients walking around out there on nitrates who may not need to be on nitrates. So very often patients will undergo percutaneous coronary intervention or coronary bypass surgery, and they continue to have a nitrate prescription even though they don't need it. So if the patient doesn't really need to be on a nitrate, then there should be consideration of discontinuing that particular drug or consider substituting other anti-anginal agents, which are out there that do not have a contraindication with PD-5 inhibitors. And we've seen that many times where the patient can actually be taken off the nitrate and doesn't need it because the patient's been fully revascularized, and that does fine then on a PD-5 inhibitor.
0: Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Some of our colleagues tell people, oh, you had a bypass surgery, you shouldn't use these drugs. But if you've had a bypass surgery, you have great exercise capacity, you've been through rehab, you're otherwise fine. Early on, even the companies that sold these drugs made some joking commentary. They had little sales aids that were somewhat sophomoric and joking. Uh, This has been a topic that's been the brunt of a lot of jokes. But in reality, one of the things that I noticed after 30 years in practice is once there was a treatment for ED patients I'd taken care of for years brought it up to me. That's and right. And it turned out right. that it actually was affecting their relationship significantly. Their wife didn't think they were attractive to him or the husband felt like less than a man and it added that closeness to the relationship that was missing the intimacy. That's right. Far from being a joke, it seems like that this is something we should attend to. It's important yes. to people in their relationships that's right. and I just wonder if that's been your Absolutely. experience.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, now that there's a therapy it's something that people can talk about. People are, are more open about it now. And I think physicians are more open about it. Before it was, you know, you never talk about it. You should talk about it with your patients. It's an important part of life.
0: One of the issues that it frequently comes up, and it is a source of confusion even for us lipid geeks, is whether it's safe to supplement testosterone. And I've noticed more and more patients are getting their testosterone tested when they're fatigued, and they have a number of nebulous symptoms, which is sometimes just getting older. What is the risk? There's been a lot of debate about the risk of replacing testosterone.
1: I'd have to say that at this time it's an unresolved issue. If one looks at the literature, it is extremely confusing. There are studies suggesting that exogenous testosterone increases cardiac events. There are studies suggesting that exogenous testosterone reduces uh, cardiovascular events. I think that if the patient is truly symptomatic and is documented to have hypogonadism and is cardiovascularly fit, reasonably fit, it's probably safe. The question comes up in the elderly frail individual whether it's safe. And I think the, that there still needs to be additional research to determine that. There's really a need for a large, multi-center, placebo-controlled outcome trial where exogenous testosterone is compared to placebo, and the primary outcome is major adverse cardiovascular events. And that study probably will be done at some time in the future, but it'll be a while before it's done.
0: The study where there was a secondary analysis. It looked like it was people primarily with established coronary disease, right, who might get some risk versus people with a I think
1: you're referring to the Tome trial from the New England Journal of Medicine. And now
0: yeah, not perfect yes. science, and there's been lots of debates about it. So
1: There's been tremendous amount of debate about it.
0: So we should suggest to our audience to keep their eyes on the literature because it is... Yes. More and more people are receiving it. Of course, from a lipid standpoint, yes. we worry a little bit about the testosterone replacement. We'll just have to see how it goes. Well, thank you very much. I can't thank you enough for your insights. And I think our audience from all specialties will gain a lot from your commentary today. So Dr. Cloner, thank you for being with us. Thank you. You've been listening to Lipid Lumination sponsored by the National Lip Association on ReachMD. Visit reachmd.com lipids where you can listen to this podcast as well as others in the series. And please make sure to leave your comments and share because we really welcome your feedback. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown for ReachMD. And remember, be part of the knowledge.